I'm officially one step closer to leaving the sanctity of my sacred space in order to join my fellow human beings in the mortal realm. I'm playing with the idea of what to wear even though I already know, and I'm dancing for pork chop and drinking a martini and putting on some of my Nana's explosively floral perfume because it enhances the feelings of nostalgia that I have about the fact of existing and injects any nervousness I'm experiencing with a sense of destiny and inevitability. I have a funny feeling about tonight, and while I don't want to get my hopes up, I always do, because I'd rather get my hopes up than be down in the dark with doubt. Earlier this evening, I couldn't figure out how to connect the new speaker system, so I'm listening to a Spice Girls CD and relishing in the sound of the first album I ever bought while dressing up like the kid I was when I bought it. I loved wearing mum's kimonos and dancing in the mirror when I was a child. It's like I knew I would be this person eventually, and tonight she's so much fun. Oh my goddess, I can't think of anything better. It's the moment before the moment and I can breathe. Anything can happen from here, and I'm in love with myself. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Madeline Ryan, talking about her debut novel, A Room Called Earth, a sensitive and fascinating insight into a neurodiverse mind. A young woman gets ready to go to a party. She arrives, feels overwhelmed, leaves, then returns. Minutely attuned to the people who come into her view, and alternating between alienation and profound connection, she is hilarious, self-aware, sometimes acerbic, and always honest. And by the end of the night, she's shown us something radical about love, loss, and the need to belong. Madeline, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Max, for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So when you originally began A Room Called Earth, how did that come about? Where did the idea of it come from? Well, in a sense, the protagonist kind of just started talking to me. Hmm. Like I'd made a lot of changes in my life. I'd created a lot of space for her to come through in a way, not consciously, I'd been acting and having sort of all kinds of different employment and living in the city and doing all these things. And then I moved to the country and I deleted social media and I started writing articles and I was diagnosed as autistic and I started eating plant-based and all these things that I see as being part of what then led up to this moment where I was at my my parents' house and I was in my childhood bedroom and my mum had her book group going in the next room and I'd sort of excused myself politely and was going into my own space and I was kind of looking around the room and I think I sat down and then I just heard the first few lines of the book, which are now what are the first few lines of the book, Hmm. and I kind of just then let her voice take me wherever she wanted to go And sometimes she'd sort of go into familiar territory and sometimes she'd go into unfamiliar territory and we just went on the adventure together, yeah, for the next couple of years, really. You mentioned among the changes how you were diagnosed with autism. How did that diagnosis come about, if you don't mind me asking, and how did it feel having such a kind of strange revelation about yourself and your identity? Yeah, so 
I actually realized now that the diagnosis came after I'd started. That actually hadn't happened yet. Um, Once I started writing, it was about six months in that I got officially diagnosed. But I I had these beautiful friends who were on the spectrum and I would spend every weekend with them in their space kind of eating all this beautiful food and just talking for hours. And this was a few years beforehand. And one of them sort of said to me one day, because I said, you know, I don't know how it is that I can sit for hours and just talk with you and I don't get drained and I don't feel all the things I often feel after having social encounters with people that go for hours, especially I'm like just a wreck. Like I feel kind of rejuvenated. I'm not used to this after spending time with people. They kind of said to me, well, Madeline, it could be because you're autistic like we are. And I was like, right. I have no idea what the ramifications of that is. Yeah. I don't know how to proceed with that, but I'm not opposed to it. I don't know how to kind of integrate it yet. And so that was three or four years beforehand. And then just before I guess I started writing the book, I kind of had a communication breakdown with my family somewhat. Like it was about something so trivial, you know, I can't even remember some social expectation not being met or I don't even know. And I sort of said to them, I think I could be autistic. You know, I think that that's a real thing. And maybe that's part of the reason why we don't get one another, like with these things sometimes. And they were like, what? You could be like, oh my God. And so from that point, we went through this journey together as a family. And I think I was, yeah, I must've been, by the time I got the official kind of piece of paper saying, you are autistic. That was probably about six months into writing the story, but it had kind of been floating around in my psyche, I guess, but not entirely consciously until it was forced into kind of awakening through that breakdown with my family in a way. It's been a wonderful process of getting to know one another again through that. And the book also helped me get to know myself in a way with that awareness um, definitely. She totally kind of led me through all the different facets of kind of what, what that means in a really loving and joyous way, because that's her in, in lots of ways as a protagonist. She's very analytical, but also very accepting. And I guess that helped me through a period where I was analyzing and trying to accept myself. So we kind of paralleled one another. You said you were about five or six months into writing A Room Called Earth Mm. before you got your diagnosis. How did the book change in light of your diagnosis? It kind of didn't. Well, the story certainly didn't. Her observations of the world and her relationship to the world was just what it was regardless. The, The process that I had to go through with that awareness was more to do with how to label her. Very early on in writing the book, like within that six months probably, I just knew that I didn't want labels. I didn't want any isms mentioned. Even before autism, I guess, was at the tip of my tongue, I knew I didn't want feminism labelled. I didn't want racism, sexism, colonialism, veganism, mysticism, environmentalism, like all the isms that could be applied to different ideas that she explores. I was just like, what's getting lost in our culture, which is very preoccupied with labels and categories at the moment. I think that that's become a really heightened part of our awareness with each other and in our communications. I think that there's a kind of humanity that's often getting lost and like the nuance of experience and sort of the our sensitivities and the subtleties of, of what we go through 
is kind of being weighed down upon by the the stamp of a category or a label, whether it's, yeah, whatever it is really. So I was conscious that I wanted the world of the book to be free of that in some way. Um, So that choice had already been made. And then it became, I guess, closer to the point of the book being published. Like once I was dealing with how to present it then to a world that is so preoccupied with labels, you know, it's like, how do you, because she was, she's definitely autistic and neurodiverse. You know, there's no question in my mind that that's her truth, but the book's truth on some level was for that not to be labeled. So it was quite difficult to reconcile the best way to introduce her to a world that's very focused on that at, at this time. And different choices were kind of made with different publishers. You know, in America, they thought it was really, really powerful and important to have the label there. Um, but then we kind of progressed with that too. Like once things kind of moved further along, I kind of talked to them and it was like, you know, I don't know if it matters. And they were like, yeah, maybe it doesn't, you know, it's just a beautiful story and an adventure. And so they've, since then, they're kind of more focused on the fact that I'm neurodiverse and that the story is just illuminating and radical. And the publishers in Australia and the UK, um, scribe their, they were always sort of like, oh, it's up to you, you know. Um, I mean, they were both essentially saying that it was up to me. It was just that I was confused <laughs> about the best way to go about it. But here it's, yeah, it's more like that the story comes from a neurodiverse mind and then people can just, which is me, and then people can just sort of experience her how they how they want. But there's no question that she she does fit that category, but I guess... I'm conscious of the limitations of even putting that category there in terms of how people enter into the story, because I think it's a very different thing to kind of pick up the book and be like, this is an adventure, full stop, and to start reading versus this is an adventure with an autistic person, full stop. It's like it's it comes with so many different connotations and ramifications to put that to put the autism or even the neurodiverse label, but more so the autism label there. And I just didn't want that to be in the way, but yet it's truthful. So it was, it was a, in that regard, the label did play a role and, you know, I'm still coming to terms with its ramifications and the best way to kind of dance with it. Cause I think I had these like dreams of single-handedly making autism cool and dynamic and amazing for everyone. You know, I was sure that this book was just going to do it. It was going to put an end to, yeah, put an end to all the drama and all the, you know, preoccupations people have or all the stigmas and stereotypes, you know, they're going to end right here with my book. But I realized that that was somewhat, uh, what is it, a delusion of grandeur or whatever, and that I can't single-handedly do that. So letting go of the label a bit has probably opened up a bit of space for the book to just find its way um, itself. But it still, you know, floats about it because it is a part of it. But I think, you know, a label can only evolve with time and with lots of people's mind energy and and um, it's not going to be my book that does it. It's going to be a collective kind of understanding which happens over time with that in mind how you were talking about writing this book that would make autism cool and accepted i guess were there any books or people i guess that sort of have tried to do that and maybe done it a little bit successfully in your mind i have a fundamental belief 
that a good story is a good story. Although I don't see myself in Rain Man necessarily, I do appreciate that that's a really powerful story, you know, and it has its place. I can't really think of any specifically neurodiverse characters that I can relate to in saying that. I don't really read much fiction, ironically enough. I'm very big on self-help and spirituality books, although I am starting to dabble a bit more. I studied literature. My parents were journalists. I grew up around a lot of fiction, but kind of 10 years ago or so, I I stopped reading it because I was conscious that when it came to my own writing or even acting, I started mimicking. Yeah, I had to get away from a lot of fiction in a sense. Um, So I can't really speak for, look, those books might be out there. I'm not actually sure. I have yet to encounter them if they exist. Um, Ones that I specifically relate to on a personal level, but I would argue that all of them have a place and all of them are powerful you know, and things like, you know, the Rosie Project and whatever those kind of books clearly really resonate with people and mean a lot to people, whether I personally relate or not. Like I've got all these film and TV shows coming to mind, which is so crass, you know, but at the same time, it's like the characters I can relate to are kind of like a mix of Cher from Clueless and like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the protagonist in Run, Lola Run. And like, you know, I'm having all these images of like kind of cinematic or TV characters. When I think about fiction, I kind of, it's just like silence in my mind. But I've also had a really long break from being very sort of um, immersed in fiction. But I certainly know that the protagonist that I've written in this, I can relate to. There's many aspects of how she, yeah, um, processes her experiences that are very close to my own ways of processing experiences, even though we come to different conclusions sometimes and we communicate differently with people and lots of different things. It's like I can see myself a lot in her, um, but, yeah, I'm not really sure when it comes to the wider world. Even if I think everything has a place and is powerful, I'm not really sure if I've seen myself. When it came to presenting the narrator's thoughts and internal monologue in the book, did you think at all about making it palatable for neurotypical readers or did you really just want to keep it in that stream of consciousness style? In as much as I personally consciously and unconsciously try to tailor myself to a neurotypical mind, it's probably mirrored in how much that's done on the page, probably consciously and unconsciously. I followed a logic with the chronology because obviously it takes place over 24 hours and it's kind of a blow-by-blow encounter with her thoughts and feelings and impressions and senses at each turn of that. And that had a logic to me that was very clear and apparent. The structure of it almost just gave birth to itself and I let it kind of guide me. Did I consciously at any point say, oh, people are not going to relate to that, I'll take it out? No. I never, ever consciously did that. Never. You know, I've also got a 50,000 word document of deleted material, but usually the basis of a deletion was more, is going into this a universally, like, is this a meaningful reflection or isn't it just in general? Or is this me just venting spleen? Like it was never, it was an assessment of whether I thought it tapped into a universal truth and whether I was even in a position to express it in a way that 
for me really captured all the nuances of that experience. And it was like, if I couldn't meet those requirements, then it wouldn't end up in the book. But it was never like, will a neurotypical person get this? Like, I don't know, better like leave it out or put it in because I want to shock them. It was like, never. That was never, never, never the the way that it worked. It was more about the quality of the writing, but then also the humanity that I could access through an observation or um, a feeling or whatever. When it came to that stream of consciousness writing style, you mentioned you haven't read that much fiction recently, but were there any books or authors you kind of took inspiration for in that style? Or was it more just, this is how my brain works and I'm going to put it on the page like this? Mainly that. I haven't read Catcher in the Rye for a really long time, but I know that when I read it, I was like 13 or 14. And the idea of being inside someone's mind for a few days blew my, like just blew my mind. That definitely left an impression on me. I haven't reread it. I don't know how I would feel about that book now, but certainly at that point in my development, reading it was like, whoa, you can do that with a book. That's cool. And then I moved on with my life, but I also didn't because I've ended up writing kind of my own uh, interpretation of that structure in a, in a sense. So I guess there's, it was that in the back of my awareness, like I knew that this existed, this structure, but I definitely, yeah, approached it with my own logic and like sensitivity to certain things that, you know, might be reflected in other books. I'm not sure, but it was certainly truthful to me. As you said, the narrator is bits of you and largely fictional. How did you decide what went into her her fictional portrayal? Yeah, I guess she kind of would tell me, like I'd get a sense of what was important to her in any given moment and it was sort of tied in with what I felt to be a universal truth or not. But then her responses were like generally my own but amplified maybe 10 or 20 times. Her ability to be silent when speaking with people or to just stay in a, she would say things, like she says things in conversation, but she's, there's a lot of humming with her. She hums a lot. I revere people who are able to sit back and just like, be quiet and like listen and not feel compelled to like explain themselves or pick things apart or, you know, analyze others openly. Like I'm so like chatty and talky in my, in my way. And that can kind of lead me into all sorts of spaces where I'll end up saying things to please others in order to make a situation feel comfortable. And I'll like end up in all these holes, but she doesn't do that. Like she stays, even though we're inside her mind and it's so like dynamic and elaborate and she's assessing everything constantly and her mind is very chatty, she herself isn't as much. When she's actually having to articulate things, she's much more cautious and particular with what she says. She still regrets things she says and goes through all kinds of processes with that, but like she's kind of more considered in a sense with her verbal communication, whereas I find it can kind of overwhelm me and I will keep talking when I probably need to just chill and sit back and just take a breath um, where she doesn't do that. And then also the, you know, the conclusions that she comes to are very, they have like a, a cleansing, clear quality I mean, she assesses ambiguities sometimes, but she's pretty 
specific with what she comes to about things. Whereas I think I'm often vacillating a lot more and debating myself a lot more about things. She kind of gently makes her way to a conclusion and you kind of get the sense she'll stay there, you know, she'll just stay there. Whereas I'm a bit more all over the place with that. So yeah, it was like a constant dance between the two of us and sort of finding where she existed. It would, you know, I'd follow those, those feelings as I was following her lead to where she would go with certain things. And there were just qualitative differences between us that emerged as, as it went on. Um, but I love her for all of that. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, I think she's helped me feel more confident with lots of things too, because of those differences. And I hope she can do that for others as well in some way. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have to ask the narrator in the book has a Heath Ledger shrine. Is that a real thing in your life or is that <laughs> pure fiction? Look, I do have a big Ned Kelly poster of the film that he did. Okay. I so do actually have that, but it is not a shrine. Yep. It is not outside. It is not surrounded by crystals and all the things, but I do have a poster of Heath Ledger as Ned Kelly and I do love it very much. I guess, again, it was that thing, you know, she's 10 times more than yeah. me <laughs> and that's reflected in that too. Um, and also the role he kind of plays as like a kind of guardian angel figure. You know, I've definitely had a dream or two about him um, and I would like to think he's a guardian angel, but she has a much deeper need, again, that 10 times me logic, a deeper need for sort of that sense of being look, watched over, I think. You know, we all have that to varying degrees, probably at different times, but as him as like a constant guardian angel-like figure in her psyche, I think is much more present than he would be in, say, my day-to-day life. You were talking about dialogue a bit before, and that was even though there's not a lot of it in the book, it was one of the things that really leapt out to me about how it's these stunted lines with large gaps of just page in between them, which I think is the best representation of what it's like just to have a really shitty conversation. <laughs> what what informed that kind of style, that just weird, like, it just, it's, it's like stunted and like hard to read, but it, in a good way. Yeah, I guess I was taking that idea of, Uh, taking what people say at face value very literally. (laughs) I was taking it to like a logical extreme in that, okay, what happens if you really just go by the words? And every person would read those exchanges and imagine something different happening around the words, I assume. Mm. You know, usually that space is filled by, I guess, the author kind of indicating she said you know, looking away and fiddling with yeah. her bag. Whereas I was and like, you don't have any of that. No. So it's like people, I guess, have then given space to come to their own conclusions about what each moment in a conversation or what's said, what it means becomes everyone's own interpretation. And it's been really interesting seeing the different responses to two things that are said in the dialogue and how, yeah, how much of a contrast it is, the kind of multifaceted nature of her inner workings and how stunted and like almost dull conversation can be. And I think that there's a truth to that. You know, it takes quite a bit of intimacy and experience and consciousness to create a dialogue with somebody that is 
multidimensional and rich, you know, otherwise a lot of us are kind of functioning at this almost robotic back and forth. Like we want to make sure we're in each other's good books, but we don't have much more of like a motivation behind what we're saying than making sure that we're, we're cool. Like we're cool. You good. Yeah, I'm good. You good. Yeah, I'm good. You good. Yeah, I'm good. And it's like, it doesn't really go deeper. Um, so I guess it's, it's, yeah, a bit of a commentary in a way on that, that space, that blankness around what's said. And it, I would hope, yeah, tapping into all those different things. But then also, yeah, giving the reader space to interpret what's being said in your own way and how it's being mm. said and imagining her saying it and then having your own image of how she would be saying it. And I and I thought that that was a nice place to give people space to do that. Interestingly, when you think of autism and like, that technically autistic people are thought to take what people say at face value and to process someone's facial expressions or their their body or their energy kind of in a compartmentalised way versus what the person's saying. And that's why it can become so overwhelming because it's like, well, their body's saying this, but their words are saying this. Yeah. How do I process each section individually and then make sense of what's actually going on in this communication? It's just having the the dialogue laid out in that way on some level gently reveals what that's like if you just go by what's said where are you if that because that's often the quickest thing to zoom in on when you're being so inundated with stimulus is the words that are being said well I find that but then often if you go by that you'll end up in all kinds of precarious places because of course people don't say what they mean the bulk of the book if I'm not mistaken was written pre-pandemic and pre-lockdown but I'm curious if you th- how you think lockdown might have affected how you wrote the book or how it might have affected the narrator's character if she was going through it at that time. You know, I think her reality would remain pretty preserved. She seems pretty, like, isolated, but, like, comfortably isolated already. Absolutely. She adores being in her own space and being given the opportunity to accept herself And being in her own company, in her own space, is such a massive cornerstone of the first portion of the book, but also her relationship to herself. It's almost like she gets incredible satisfaction and comfort out of being faced with herself and then finding a way to accept it, you know, and figuring out what she likes and what she doesn't like and how she enjoys spending time with herself. It's like, the height of her own enlightenment or something is kind of based around that. Um, So I don't think lockdown would bother her, although I do think she would mourn the loss of being able to go to a party because that is another way for her to kind of test herself in the world Um, and in a way to connect with people because she, you know, that thing of, well, I'm embracing myself, I'm moving with my own rhythms, I'm caring for myself, that's all great, but you need an opportunity to rub up against others on literally and not literally to really see in the safety of my own literal physical environment I can do that. But what happens when, you know, I'm, I'm confronted with someone who thinks differently from me or feels differently from me or has different expectations from me. It's like, well, can I love myself now? Can I love them? Well, what happens? And that's quite Mm. an exciting adventure to go on. And I think if she didn't feel that she had that opportunity to explore herself and others and, and find ways to connect with people, she would be really, really devastated. And then her space with herself could be affected by that 
no doubt, mm. which it has obviously with lots of people in the world. While she has a good foundation in lots of ways to deal with isolation, I think if she really felt she didn't have that opportunity, she would mourn the loss of it. That's probably a whole other whole other book, how that would then affect her space with herself too. Well, on that topic of self-discovery, you mentioned in an article, I think on LitHub or something, that you hoped that the book would facilitate a kind of exorcism. And I'm curious what you meant by that, because it's a very <laughs> interesting use of the word exorcism. Oh, that, that taps into lots of different things. I guess I can't exactly remember... Ex- the the paragraph but what came to mind first was the stigmas and stereotypes around autism mm. i sort of hoped that the book would exorcise a lot of a lot of those in a, in a way but i guess also there's so much in the way that i think is somewhat toxic of us being able to cultivate a loving relationship with ourselves so i guess the book is a way to look at all those influences and then, you know, see what happens when the person, you know, is choosing to relinquish those and still love themselves and be with themselves. Like, you know, she analyzes her own body. She she never specifically talks about um, social media or anything, but there is a big sequence in the book where she's on the on a dance floor, sort of watching all the different people. To me, that whole section is like a a metaphor for Instagram. You know, she's trying to find her place amidst all the cliques, all the images, all the and image by image, I guess, the the people, um, the images that the people are wanting to embody. Like there's people dressed in certain ways and doing behaving in different ways and presenting themselves in different ways. And she's sort of moving through the crowd, wanting to figure out where she can dance among them, like literally, but also spiritually and physically and I think in terms of an exorcism kind of shining a light on these patterns of behavior and ways of thinking can hopefully allow a a reader but anybody when you shine a light on these patterns I think it's so easy to not see them and to just play out being on Instagram or you know and having pain and having all these things and just not really knowing where it's coming from or what's going on so to kind of you know an exorcism of the darkness around these things I guess is important to me too I don't know if that entirely makes sense but she also talks about how going to a party is a kind of homeopathy you know, you've got to take a bit of the poison in order to cure yourself of the, <laughs> yeah, the poison. It's like and, a vaccine or you something. Know, yeah, exactly. The, the logic of that uh, definitely applies in that idea of exorcism as well. Like, and I would hope the book can function as that because at its core, it is about acceptance and trans, you know, and transcendence and joy. But it's not like she doesn't encounter difficult things. And I think if you encounter something difficult but can find an aspect of relief or spaciousness or joy, even in the face of something painful, challenging, toxic, that's a kind of exorcism to me, you know. So, yeah, I guess that idea taps into lots of different parts of the psychology of the book. For my last question, at the moment you're working with your longtime film collaborator, Hector McKenzie, on a screen version of A Grim Call Birth. And if you're comfortable talking a little bit about it, I need to know how you are going to bring such an introspective novel to the screen. It almost doesn't <laughs> compute in my brain how you can make a novel that's entirely set in somebody's head. 
Yeah, well, I always saw it visually. Like I think I write from images in my mind and so, but also I've always seen it as being a story that was, you know, destined for the screen and to be told visually. At this point, and obviously I'm conscious that these things evolve and take on all kinds of different shapes and permutations as the process unfolds. But at the moment, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's done in episodes and we've got one episode with her and then other episodes with other characters that feature in the novel. And it's kind of a day in the life of their perspective. Okay. Yeah. So it's like taking that idea of the individual experience as a universal experience, because obviously uh, a con- you know, a really important structural aspect of the book for me is that idea that we all have our own room called Earth. In a way, it's giving each of the characters that emerge in the story an opportunity for them to have their 24 hours and for them to have their inner workings illuminated and then the interaction that they have with the protagonist is a, is a part of that. Yeah. But you might get a whole new perspective on who that person is and what their life is through the show or the adaptation. So it's taking kind of core themes of the book and her is like the the link between each of the characters and her perspective is kind of the link and is a really strong part of it, but that that everybody gets their room called Earth and their opportunity to sort of have that space through the show feels really feels really right at at the moment obviously as i said you know these things morph and evolve as as time sort of goes on and different people come in and have ideas and things open up but already it's gone through a few different um sort of shapes and and ways of modes of interpretation but you know that feeling of it also being set in melbourne I don't know, celebrating Melbourne people um, is very important to me. And that idea of a party in Melbourne and then the people at that party oh, and, and being able to, oh, it makes me feel emotional, but like celebrate that and give them space to live their lives and be beautiful and magical and amazing. I don't know, there's something about that that really appeals to me too right now. So that's where it's at. Yeah, it was strange reading the book and have it, having it set during the, uh, the bushfires because that felt like such a long time ago. I know. It was bizarre. And like at that time I was still editing the book, just doing the final edits on it, you know, and I added the, the lines about the haze and that, you know, cause it was like, well, you know, summer in Melbourne and being in the city, there can be haze, bushfires are in the background. It's a part of being in this country. So it felt like a timeless thing to sort of add that element to the idea of Melbourne in the summer. But yeah, given everything that then happened in 2020, it's but then there are themes that always tapped into the things that came up through 2020, as you, you were saying, like, you know, us having to face ourselves and all sorts of things. So, but I hope between the book and, and the series um, that a kind of celebration of what it means to just to be human and to be alive kind of with all your feelings and sensations and memories and regardless of your circumstances, whether you're in lockdown or not, whether you're neurodiverse or not, whether you're like whatever, just being human and knowing that you belong because you're human, that's the most important thing to me in in the work that I do. So, Absolutely. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Max. It was fun. 